when Bailey mentioned I've been a member since 2008, I would like to say that I was part of a two-person membership class that included me and Steve Yang, who is the worship leader up here. And at the time, I remember he drove me home after worship practice, and he was like, so there's this girl. Um, we're not together right now, but I know she's the one. And she was the co-leader up here today, and they've been married since 2011. Yeah, way to make it happen, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what today's message is about. Um, so, also, I just, I, did you start recording it? I hope you didn't. I just still need to say this real quick. I'm pregnant. I might need to throw up during the course of the sermon. If that happens, it's fine. It's totally normal. I'm just going to run to the back. I'll come back up here, and we're just going to continue like it didn't happen. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. So... I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be going into today, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in for real. Um, but I'm here today to talk to all of you, to talk to the church, about justice as a cornerstone of Christian faith and justice as an integral part of an effective Christian witness. And I'm not going to be talking about some of the particulars about, like, to what extent should the church be the agent of social change versus the government? Are there certain political ideologies that are more Christian than others? Like, I think those are all valid conversations, but that's not what I'm going to get into. What I do want to talk about is what I believe are the core callings and obligations that every Christian is accountable to, no matter um, the time, place, culture we live in. And I want to talk about how that call to justice is a through line that starts in Genesis continues through the Old Testament into the prophets, the Gospels, and culminates in Revelation. And I think that we're part of that story. We're accountable to it. We're invited into it. And so parts of it may be comfortable. Parts of it may be uncomfortable. But what I'm inviting us to do as a church is to think about, you know, who is Jesus? And how is justice a way that we are invited to know him in a deeper level and make him known to the people around us? Okay? And if you're not a Christian, welcome. In that case, the invitation for you is to think about who is God? Why is justice so core to his character? And what does his value for justice tell us about who he is and why he's worthy of our worship and our trust? Sound good? I, this active listening thing is happening already. Thank you so much. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us. Dear Holy Spirit, we invite you here as the comforter and the instructor, the teacher that Jesus has left to walk with us today in this present age. I thank you that you truly, you truly comfort, you bring fortitude to us. Um, to follow Jesus in the ways that he's called us to, in ways that are so radical and transformative that they can feel intimidating, but they are truly the only path to life. And so I pray that you would do what you do so well, which is make Jesus known, make him vivid, make him real, make his reality real to us, Lord. And so I ask that you would do what only you can do, which is to speak to all of our individual hearts and our histories with you. 
And I pray that you would also speak to us as a corporate body and community that is pursuing you together. We open ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. We give you our attention, our affection, our openness. We give you the right to question us, to know us, um, to separate the things that need to be separated, to expose the things that need to be exposed. And we do this trusting you, that you are who you say you are, that you are truly good. There is no darkness in you. So um, as we invite you to encounter us, we're not afraid. But we still come to you with humility. Um, and we just invite you to lead us. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Okay, sweet. So I'm going to start us off from a point that I think probably all Christians can agree upon. Um, and that point is made when Jesus addresses the early church in Acts 1-8. When people are asking, like, you know, are you going to restore the kingdom to Jerusalem right now? What's going to happen after, now that you've been resurrected? And he says, well, you know, we're not going to know the day or the hour. But what you know is this, is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Siberia, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so from this, what I want to emphasize is we, the church, are called to be witnesses. That's like a foundational assumption that I want to hang on to for today. And what I want to ask now is like, so what does a witness do? I think that a witness, whether it's like in a court of law or whether like a witness, someone who is just like telling what they've seen, is a witness is someone who paints a picture of a reality so that others who have not encountered that same reality have the chance to know it and respond accordingly. So for us, the church, what are we bearing witness to? You know, we're bearing witness to the God that we know. We're bearing witness to the kingdom that we've seen. And we're trying to make that reality visible to a world that may not have encountered it or have any access to it. And I think Jesus models the witness perfectly when he comes with his message saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand you know turn away from the things that you're currently looking at or doing because there's another kingdom and it's at hand it's close and it can be apprehended through me that's what he's saying and i think that the way that jesus lived he was speaking and responding and making decisions based upon a reality that other people had dreamed of or prophesied of but had not yet encountered until he came. And in everything that he did, he painted a portrait of this coming kingdom and he painted a portrait of his father whose nature and values define that kingdom. He even said, like, if you see me, you see the father. So if you're a Christian and you're a disciple of Jesus, then you're called to similarly bear witness to the kingdom of heaven and to the king at its center. And what I want to say today is like that invitation that Jesus issues in the gospels is not a new invitation. And it's not a new revelation of who God is um, or what his kingdom is like. It's actually consistent from Genesis through Revelation. It maintains its integrity. And I'm not going to speed read the whole Bible because... <laughs> We'd be here till Ryan and Suki get back. But what I am going to do is I want to I look at two critical pieces of scripture that I want us to think about as reference points when we're thinking about Christians and the engagement with justice and with witness. And the first passage is in Leviticus 
a dope book, a super underrated book. Go read Leviticus if you haven't read it recently. It is very good. All right, so I'm going to just read, like, portions of it, but I'm going to just first tell you, like, in the very beginning of the passage, it says, well, context first. So Leviticus, um, I think is very moving and poignant because it's God's address to a people who've come out of slavery, who are reestablishing their identity, they're reestablishing their culture, and he's talking to them about what's going to make this group of people distinct. And he says to them in the beginning of this chapter, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so that's the starting point. You know, everything that we're going to read from here on out, it's God saying, this is how you're going to be because this is how I am. And so if you keep these commandments, keep these ways of mine, you are going to render a portrait of me to everyone who sees you. All right, and before I read it, I will say, like, these are portions of it. And I think the passage that follows when God says, be holy for as I am holy, I think it can be broken up roughly into three parts. Like one of the ways of being holy is like there's a ritual holiness where God talks about sacrifice, how he wants to be worshiped. There's elements about um, right relationship between God and people. But maybe like half of it is about the relationship between people and people. And so that's the portion I'm going to read. So I'm just going to read through this. And I'm reading the ESV version. All right, so in verse 9, it begins, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, neighbor, pardon, or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All right, and moving to verse 32. It says, You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall, do, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, just, okay, I can't read these measures of but you can read them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Okay, that's great and it scares me because I'm like not doing half of the things um, outlined here. Hey, if you're not scared, you're not paying attention. Just kidding. Um, Okay, so, so I think what's so 
fascinating and compelling about this passage is it's God giving a self-portrait. He's saying, be this way because this is how I am. Like all these things that I'm inviting you to do, actually commanding you to do, I'm commanding because I've done these things first. Um, And if you do these things, it's a radical witness to everyone who sees you. There's, uh, there's a woman named Marilyn Robinson. She's a, she's, a, she's a writer and she's a cultural critic. She's like the Beyonce of cultural critics. She can like just take things that don't seem trendy and like make them very trendy. But she, she's written a couple essays about the Old Testament and its relationship to Western law. And one of the things that she points out is how radical Levitical law is, even compared to the laws of Western democracies today. And how in terms of the humaneness of our society, the liberality of our society, we don't measure up to Levitical law. And some of the examples she gives is there's no punishment for desecration of property in the Old Testament. How, like, you know, you do something here, like, private property is so sacred in the United States. You do something against someone's personal property, like, you're going to get in trouble. But there's, that doesn't happen in the Old Testament. There, the, the most severe punishments, capital punishment, is reserved for violations in the relationship between God and people and people to people. So relationships are the primary thing that are looked upon as measurements of righteousness, not how we treat property, money, etc. Um, another thing that she talks about in terms of the radicalness of Levitical law is how deservedness is not a question here. Right? Like when you you hear, if you read through the whole book of Leviticus, it's, it's a little challenging and scary, actually, how generous God commands people to be. It's like, if someone needs something, you give it to them. And there's no, there's no equivocating about, like, does this orphan deserve it? Or does this widow, de- no, no. You're going to treat all of them the way that God told you to treat them. There's no questions being asked here. Um, and and the regard that the Lord has for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. I don't think we, we need to even like go too deeply into this, but you know, Marilyn Robinson continues to write about it now in our current political climate. If you look at how this trio, this population, these populations are being treated in America, that in itself should raise some questions about whether or not we are faithfully adhering to the things that the Lord has called us to. If these people and their prosperity and their sense of safety are measurements of whether or not a nation is adhering to the ways of the Lord, then I think we just have some soul searching to do there. All right. So maybe you're thinking, great, Leviticus, but we're in the new covenant now. Um, Problematics. Well, let's look at Matthew 5. So if we go to Matthew 5, I'm not going to read the whole Sermon on the Mount that runs like for three chapters, but you can read it for yourself. But um, when Jesus comes to establish a new covenant with us, he doesn't abolish the law. He renders his father's heart perfectly. And everything that we see in the old covenant, he raises the ante. So I'm just going to read a couple portions of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to draw some parallels between what we've just seen in Leviticus and what we're going to see in Matthew. So starting in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said, um, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's me. All right. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out till you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, and I'm going to continue on to verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, finally, last portion here that I want to talk about. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whew. Okay, don't get discouraged here. <laughs> well, we'll end right there. You must be for perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, but what I want to take away from, from these passages as of right now is that with the parallels we see here is that a, the nature of God is relational. He's deeply concerned with how we treat one another. And he expresses his nature through all kinds of human relationships. And he's concerned about how those relationships reflect his value for creation or not. Um, and those values run across social relationships, economic relationships, gendered relationships, ethnic, individual, and corporate. And so going back to what we just saw in these passages and in the book of Acts is, hey, we're called to be witnesses. That means we're called to do what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. The church is meant to paint a portrait of a heavenly kingdom and of the king at its center. And this king has told us how he wants to be portrayed. He's holy and perfect, and those qualities manifest in the context of relationships. And he asks us to represent him by being in correct relationship, not only with him, but with the people we live alongside, and he describes what he expects in those relationships in very specific terms. All right, the other takeaway from that is like it's really hard, right? It's really hard to live according to those terms. Um, and that's not meant to discourage us. But what I do want to do today is say like, as we read these things and think about what we're called to as believers and as a church, it's meant to place a demand on our relationships with God. It's meant to place a demand on our theologies. 
It's meant to place a demand on what we believe, why, and whether or not it's bearing the fruit that we're being asked to bear in these passages. And I think the other thing it's meant to do is make us sober-minded about how much we need the Holy Spirit so that we can properly respond to the Lord when he's calling us to an impossible standard. And so all of that is also to say, this is what justice means for a believer, for someone who follows Jesus. To live justly is to live according to God's terms for how we relate not only to him, but to the people that he's placed around us on both an individual and a systemic level. Okay, so that was like a lot of Bible. So what does that mean for us today, right now? And what I'm saying us, what I want to speak to is churches that are relatively educated, relatively privileged, and live in diverse urban centers. So dark. Um, and I'm not going to be calling out other people. I'll call it myself first. I'm going to tell you some stories that are not cute about me. Okay, so... Um, I'm going to tell you all a story about me in 2014 when I, I was on college ministry at the ARC at that time. So I was, um, I was on staff with the church. And around 2014, I started praying and asking the Lord how I could expand my understanding of witness. And a lot of that was because I was thinking about how I'm, I'm really comfortable praying for people. I'm really comfortable like witnessing to people verbally. I'm fine having conversations about faith or like asking God to you know, move on someone else's behalf so they can know him. And those were my primary tools for witness at the time. I still think those are valid. So if you're doing that, don't stop. You know, eagerly pursue those things, like pursue the gifts, like pray for people, um, verbally transmit the gospel. Those things are really crucial. At the same time, what I was wrestling with was I felt like I had a hierarchy in my heart of what was a valid expression of Christian witness and what was not. And in my mind, that hierarchy went something like this, like prayer is number one, um, fasting somewhere up there, musical worship is good, uh, witnessing to people through words, praying for signs and wonders, and then underneath all that is stuff like feeding the hungry, taking care of people who don't have a place to live, um, advocating for folks that might be disenfranchised in our community. And I was like, you know, I don't really know if that hierarchy is from me or from God. And one day during worship, he was like, it's not from me. And I was like, well, good, now I know. And then so the question was like, okay, so God, what do I do then? Because I definitely live my life as if these forms of Christianity and Christian witness are more valid than others. And I felt like one of the things that he said was, well, you could try working in the social sector for a while and like give it a couple years and really intentionally engage me during your time working in the social sector and, and ask me, and just ask me, if you don't know. Like, ask me how you want, um, how you want, I'm going to ask how, how he wants me to show up. Um, and so I did. And I started a job around that time that was focusing on economic opportunity for transition-aged youth that had barriers to finding career track employment, whether it's because of contact with the carceral system, whether it's because of their process um, aging out of the foster system or other complications regarding um, immigration status, poverty, uh, systemic racism. And the situations I found myself in placed a demand on my discipleship. And they forced me to ask God for more direction and empowerment in terms of how I was called to represent him. Okay. 
I'm going to tell the story. It might not be cute, but that's cool. So once upon a time at my job, I, I was working very hard at this job, by the way. I was stressed out all the time. I was at my office all the time. And I was like, well, God, are you going to reward this? Because I'm putting so much effort into this. I'm praying for people. I'm, yeah, I'm doing what I can. And instead of me getting the fruit that I wanted to, what happened was one day I was in, I was in a large meeting and one of the young people that was being served in that, um, that cohort of clients that I had like verbally confronted me in front of everybody in the group and was like, you know, you are a rude lady. And I was like, is this, gen- is this because I'm bossy? Like, he's like, you're a bossy lady. I don't like the tone you use to talk to people. Like, it was a lot of things. It was in front of my supervisor, in front of the director that like, I was like, these are the people that control my performance review. Um, and he just like really chewed me out, right? And I was embarrassed and I was really hurt. And um, I didn't know how to respond. And I was thinking about it for a little bit and like deciding whether or not I should confront him because I'm high confrontation, um, generally speaking. (laughs) But I felt like God was like, no. If you're here to be a witness, one of the things that you're invited to do is show him compassion and, um, and do a good job on his behalf. Because the next week after that, they're like, hey, you know, something came up. that the young person that, that like embarrassed you in front of your boss, um, he's in a situation right now where he, like, so the organization that I was working with, like, what they did was they, they would provide vocational training, like, coding, blah, 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 and, like, place people with Fortune 500 tech companies to, like, get them on track to getting hired. Like, well, you know, he, he's a gifted young person. He got the internship that he's currently in because the, the CTO of the company, like, personally vouched for him to take that role. But he's the only young black man on his team, and his manager is being extremely inappropriate and, like, making fun of him in front of the team. Like, he's, like, being excluded from certain projects, and uh, he doesn't know if he can if he can last, you know, through the internship without, like, saying something or quitting because it's just really getting to him. So could you just go and like fix the situation? And I was like, I don't want to see him again. <laughs> you know, I really don't. Um, and I felt like I, I, I didn't have the toolkit that I usually draw on because I was like, well, normally um, in a ministry setting, like I was really used to like praying with people or like, you know, talking to them like through their problems. Like that's what I'm good at and leading worship sometimes. But like none of those things were relevant in this situation. <laughs> Um, and so I was praying for this young person. Um, I felt like God was just saying, like, you know, those things might not matter to him right now. Like, if you go and you, like, if you walk up to him and you're, like, verbalizing, like, oh, you know, this is who Jesus is. Like, he died for your sins. Like, can I pray for you? Like, yeah, that's nice. But maybe you just do your job. And, like, maybe you just make sure that he still has a paycheck next week and that he has a place to live because that would, that would be a good witness. And so, um, right? So I was like, okay. Oh, also, I was pregnant at that time. I'm always pregnant. I've just been pregnant forever. And I was, you know, I was pregnant, and I was, like, throwing up on the BART, and I would have to, like, ride the BART to go meet, like, this manager that I, like, really didn't want to meet. Um, but David was so sweet to me. I remember that day, like, he, he, like, ironed my shirt for me, and he, like, drove me to West Oakland BART so I wouldn't have to, like, ride too many stops so I could go take this meeting. Thanks, babe. Um... Yeah, but I went, and I felt like what God was highlighting there that was so different from what I was used to was he was like, you know, you, some of the things that you could do to bear good witness to me is, like, advocate for this young man who's been let down by, like, a lot of adults in his life. Don't lecture him. Maybe, like, be good at your job. Maybe think about how you could navigate a situation that, 
like impacts people's understanding of like systemic racism and opportunities and like economic opportunity and gentrification, which his manager does not see right now. Like go have that conversation and like come through for him. So, um, you know, I went and I met with this young person before, before the meeting happened. Um, I think I tried to like shake his hand or something. He didn't want to and he was like, I'm sorry, like, you know, I didn't have a place to sleep the past couple nights, so I didn't have the chance to clean myself. So, you know, he just didn't want me to shake his hand. And I think even in that moment, I was like, oh, like, what were my priorities in this situation? Like, I couldn't even see the need in front of me because I was so used to having a certain way of approaching ministry or, or approaching people that I couldn't even think about the fact that this young person just aged out of foster care and didn't have a place to go. And, like, there are questions that are way more crucial right now than, like, than the ones that I'm accustomed to asking. Um, so I hope that just kind of illustrates for you like the wrestling that was happening inside of me during that period of my life where I was thinking about like, you know, what does it mean to be an effective or like an integrous witness, right? Like I have these things in my life that are still true. Like I'm still gonna pray for people. I'm still gonna talk to them about who Jesus is. But what are the other things in my toolkit that relate to the actions that I can take with regards to the very people that the Lord has concerned himself with? You know, in this case, a young person who, who just didn't have consistent adults, like, um, to show up in his life at that point. And at the end of that time, I felt like God highlighted a scripture that I think is, like, the crux on which this whole matter turns, for me at least. And I think the scripture speaks to how to live as a witness and how to represent the values of his kingdom, which is Matthew 25. Oh, no, sorry, Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. It said, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I'm, I'm going to unpack that a little later. But the other thing that I wanted to say regarding this story that I shared with you all is, like, I think in that instance, I also saw the validity of God's own instructions for how he wants to be witnessed about. Um, because I think as I was working at that job, and also in my current role too, um, people responded so strongly to the fact that I was a Christian who prioritized acts of service and who was willing to engage in systemic as well as individual injustices. And what I think about that is like, I think the world is starving for the vision of justice and integrity that's presented in the Bible and starving for the vision of that kingdom that God has painted. You know, I didn't, I didn't really know that. Like maybe it's obvious to some of you, you know, but I didn't know until that moment. I was like, people are really hungry for this, and they're really hungry to see someone who identifies as a follower of Jesus and someone who, who does things in his name be attentive to all these areas and not just a few, which is not to say that I did it perfectly at all because there were many things I could have done better, but the point that I want to make there is like, I came away from that just thinking like, oh, he was right about himself. <laughs> You know, God was right when he said, like, this would, these would be the things that set you apart. These would be the things that make the vision of God, make the vision of Jesus compelling to the world. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about the call to bear witness, and then I want to unpack 
why I think Matthew 20 is such a key for us as we're trying to follow the heart of God as outlined in Leviticus and in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things I want to address first around the call to bear witness is I think the conversation around justice in the church in the Bay Area, it's been a little funny for me the past couple years. And one of the reasons why is because sometimes I feel like the church shrinks back and, and acts intimidated or even disempowered when it comes to the conversation around justice. And sometimes even like a little bit victim-y, like, like, oh, people don't trust the church or like people don't give the church a space. And sure, maybe sometimes, but I want to offer another framing, which is the church is really powerful. Okay, like we have so much power because we have the most, maybe the most eternally significant power out of everyone involved in this conversation, which is we can influence how people perceive God and we can influence their decisions relating to their response to him. And that's amazing, and it's also a little terrifying. Um, and one of the reasons I want to talk about justice in relation to wit witness is because I think, at least for me, the way that I was raised in the church, there was a lot of focus on verbally explicating the gospel, which again, I think is super valuable. So please don't take away from this message that we shouldn't be verbally transmitting the gospel. But I want to elevate the importance of our behavior as a factor of equal importance when it comes to telling the world about who God is and about his kingdom. And in relation to that, I want to say that whether or not we're conscious of it, we are always bearing witness. I think that once people know we're Christians, they pay attention to what we say and do. I think like everyone in my workplace, like who I talk to for more than five minutes knows I'm a Christian. And like if we've talked for longer than that, like I've heard about like their history with the church or their history with faith. And what amazes me every time is how much they remember about the Christians that they've known in their lifetime, like the good and the bad. You know, people will be like, oh yeah, like this teacher I had in high school who was like amazing or terrible, you know, who was a Christian or like this coworker I had who, you know, either had a lot of integrity or who didn't, you know, and like they were a Christian. Um, and it stays with people, like for better or for worse. And so I, what I want to say is like we have power, whether or not we're conscious of the fact that we're wielding it. You know, so I think justice is really important in thinking about an intentional way we wield that power to influence how people see Jesus. So that's on an individual level. But on a systemic level, too, I think the, the things we choose to do collectively as a body of Christ can either present barriers to people's ability to see God rightly and respond to him, or it can lower those barriers so that people can see and respond to him for who he truly is and not for who we might have accidentally made him out to be. Um, a couple of examples of this, like, so like for a period in my life where I thought I was gonna, I don't know, like be a lawyer, or I don't know. I was like studying East Asian politics for three years and I changed my major my senior year of college, not recommended. But like, you know, one of the themes that was visited a lot in in the, the politics of East Asia was how much colonization impacted policies around like immigration and people's openness to the gospel. And like the prime example of that is like how Japan decided to close itself off completely to missions because they saw how um, the colonization of East Asian countries and South Asian countries began with first missionaries entering and then it would be like a foreign military. And so Japan was like, let's just not even, let's just not even start. Let's just cut it off. You know, let's just not have the missionaries at all. And we're not gonna have this problem. And indeed, they were not colonized. And, and um, sure, that was their decision, but I place a big part of that on like, that's on us too as a church, right? It's like, that was our relationship to military. That was our relationship to power and colonization. And it's like, yeah, I just think we could have done that better. Right? And so I think 
that that's like that's just kind of a sobering moment for me because I think about how um, the corporate movement of the church in that moment and how it was paired with power put barriers up for an entire nation of people in their receptiveness to the gospel. Um, another example of that, like that's closer to home for us, is the American church's relationship with race and slavery. I think whether or not it was intentional, the church has messed up in that area. And the church has really struggled to reckon with race, to reckon with white supremacy, to reckon with the legacy of slavery, has really struggled to, to even be able to say black lives matter because it's like, it's like the church can't agree on that sometimes. Um, and, that, and I believe that grieves the heart of God. I was talking to um, one of the members of this church who was telling me her relative is George Whitfield, who, I don't know if y'all know who he is, but he, he was one of the ministers of the Great Awakening. He was a peer to Jonathan Edwards. He was, he was instrumental in the formation of Georgia as like the 13th colony. Um, and he was really known for establishing orphanages in America as part of his witness during the Great Awakening. But what he's also known for is for legalizing the institution of slavery in Georgia. Like those were like his two big accomplishments was establishing orphanages and helping to legalize slavery. And so what, like, the reason I'm bringing that up is not to say, like, oh, like, you know, we're better than him now. Like, no, 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 no. It's, like, to say, like, I think the church in America has always wrestled with this. And, um, and I think there's a systemic impact to that. You know, like, if you've talked to any non-believers, like, I'm guessing slavery has come up as an issue. <laughs> you know, just, like, as a stumbling block. People are like, yeah, like, you all say this about Jesus. You say this about the Bible. But, like, what about X, Y, and Z things the church has done? And I'm like, Yeah valid. I can totally see how that would be incredibly confusing and problematic because that's part of the church's legacy in America, and it's been unclear whether or not we've repented for it. And so, you know, I'll be honest, it's like hard for me to have those conversations with non-believers sometimes, and sometimes I feel really defensive. I'm like, well, that's not who Jesus is. Like, if you really knew him, like, but then, you know, <laughs> like, I had a thought like that, you know, a while ago, and I felt like God just highlighted Romans 10 to me, where it says, you know, basically it says, like, how can people know, like, if they haven't heard from you? Like, you know, they don't know because you don't tell them. It's on you, you know, it's on us as the church to make sure that people get a clear and holistic and well-represented message about who Jesus is. You know, it's not on them. That's on us. Um, but, you know, on the flip side of that, I also think that's the reason why the civil rights movement of the 1960s is still such a compelling witness to people today. Because I think that was, a, that was a moment where it was largely the black church leading the way to bear witness at a systemic and an individual level that, that I think like really represented the heart of God in a way that people were so hungry to see. And I think that's why like, you know, half a century later, people still regard it as a touchstone for their activism. Um, actually, like I had a really, like piercing conversation with a with a friend of mine that is not a believer and has been very involved in Black Lives Matter since its inception in Oakland. And what my friend was saying is um, that they feel like they need God, and they feel like they need the church in the way that they saw it in the in the writings about the 1960s and the civil rights movement. But they just don't know where to go now to find that. And like that pierced me. I was like, here's this person who's literally saying to me that they need God and that they are compelled by a vision of what the church once did and they don't know where to find that right now. 
like, man, and that's not meant to be like, oh, you know, boo-hoo, bad us, but it's meant to be like, God, let's be that church. Like, let's, like, make us that church. Um, but so, all of this, I think it, it can get really discouraging without Jesus, because then you're like, well, <laughs> um, you know, we've messed up. There's, like, systemic injustice. There's individual injustice, and, like, what, you know, what do we do in all this? And so, that's why I want to go back to talking about, to talking about Jesus and the example that he sets when he says that he did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um... But before I get there, I'm going to tell you another really sad story. <laughs> so hold the hand of the person next to you. <laughs> Especially if you're single and trying not to be. <laughs> okay, so the story, the story is a story of the Bible. Saddest story ever up until certain parts of it. If they make a movie out of the Bible, I'm never going to watch it. Um, so what I want to say in regards to the Bible is that... Um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So all the injustice that we see today in this nation, like, they're not new. And what I want to argue is that they all stem from the same root, right? All acts of injustice come from us acting oppositely from how Jesus presents himself. It's when we insist that we're going to be served and we're going to force other people to serve us and we're going to glorify ourselves. Right? That's what happens when um, Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're like... I could be like God. I'm gonna eat that fruit. And then it happens again when Cain kills Abel, where he's like, you know, I'm gonna enrich my own life at the cost of this other person's life. I'm gonna serve me. We see that again with the Tower of Babel, with empires that established like Egypt, um, Babylon, Rome, it's all the same. And the saddest part is like Israel, God's own people, whom he calls to be like him through living righteously and justly. And when you get to like the middle parts where it's the prophets, it's God saying, hey, my judgments come upon you now because you didn't, you didn't keep the commandments that I asked you to keep, and you've become just like the other empires that I judged. Woo. See, I'm not going to watch that movie. Um, and so I think it's the same route. You know, whether you go all the way back to Genesis or whether you look at America today, when we do the opposite of living justly, it's us taking for ourselves the right to define right and wrong taking for ourselves the knowledge of good and evil and enforcing them upon other people. You know, it's like me saying, you're going to serve me because I've decided that's right. I'm not going to follow Jesus' commandments to, or his example to be a servant of all, but I'm going to ask you to serve me. I think that's where slavery comes from. I think that's where colonization came from, economic exploitation, systemic racism, human trafficking, all the same spirit, right? It's all the same root that gave rise to empire, that gave rise to Adam and Eve eating from the tree. It's us exalting ourselves into the place of God and choosing to define what's right and wrong instead of listening to what he said in the beginning. Um, and every single one of us is complicit in this, so without Jesus, we are caught in this legacy of brokenness. This is not like the woke Olympics, because if it was, everybody would lose, right? Everyone's complicit in something, right? It's like... Okay, like, ah, you know, I'm not racist. Like, yes, you are. Like, did you, like, have you benefited from, like, a system that's racially unjust? Like, do you live on property that's affordable to you because of gentrification or racially inequitable, like, economic policy? Uh, then, okay, maybe you're racist. Oh, I don't enslave anyone. Well, have you shopped at Target? Like, like, do you know who made your clothes? Like, do you own a pair of Nikes? Like, do you, like, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I don't believe in human trafficking, theoretically, but 
you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know who made like half the things I own, right? Like, theoretically, I, like, I just learned that um, a lot of the recycling that we generate, it doesn't actually become like remade into anything else. It's like shipped off to other countries and like dumped there. Um, I think I learned this because I think Malaysia is push pushing back against us now, right? Yeah, Malaysia is saying we're not going to be a dumping ground for Western countries. I was like, didn't know I was doing that to anybody, but um, apparently I was. But, so, but my point is, like, I think the faster we can admit that we're all complicit in some level of systemic or individual injustice, the easier it is for us to go to God and say, like, I need you. I need you to teach me, and I need you to empower me. Because my righteousness is like filthy rags before you. You know, I've sinned and fallen short just like everybody else. You know, so I think the faster we can stop being self-righteous, the faster we can stop being defensive, the easier it will be for us to come to the Lord in humility and, and turn towards the kingdom. So the beautiful and revolutionary thing in all this is I think Jesus' life is the total refutation of the spirit that leads us to enslave, to colonize, to eat of the tree. Because in thinking about the arc of Jesus' life, I think in Philippians 2, it's summarized so beautifully where it says that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, or in other translations it says to be used to his own advantage. But he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. So I think if human injustice can be summarized as compelling other people to lay down their lives on your behalf so that you can exalt yourself, Jesus' justice is the opposite which is laying down your life out of love for others and exalting the name of Jesus and exalting the ways of his kingdom. And so because of this, I really think that Jesus's cross and his life are the one path that we have out of this human history of oppression and brokenness and injustice. Like the path to the cross is the way out. And what do I mean by this? Like I mean it like on a literal sense and like on a metaphorical sense. So I think Jesus' execution was his enthronement. I think that when he appeared to be at his weakest, he was acting as the strongest person and the most credible witness that the world has ever seen. Because in that moment, he had perfect integrity with the law and the prophets. Like nothing could make him complicit in exploitation. Nothing could make him complicit in sin. Um, nothing could make him seek his own advancement, even when it, in, even when it meant that he would be accused and persecuted. And in the end, he overcame his enemies by dying for them. And he couldn't be moved out of his posture of love and servitude. It was like nothing could move him. And you know, when he says that the first will be last and the last will be first in the kingdom, I think he's not just talking about the kingdom generally, but he was like foreshadowing his own death and um, foreshadowing the way into the kingdom that he was inviting us to. Are y'all tracking with me on this? This is like a lot of stuff. Okay, sweet. All right. Um, and so the, how many of you listen to the Bible Project podcast or have seen the YouTube videos? So good, right? Um, yeah, so Tim Mackey, who's the Western Seminary professor, who's, who's a director for a lot of the content for the podcast and for the videos, he argues that the theme of sacrificial relationship that begins in Genesis, continues in the Gospels, is then finished in Revelation. Because what he says is like, you know, when Jesus comes back with the, uh, on the white horse with a tattoo on his thigh. Don't you guys wonder about the tattoo on his thigh? I'm like, how do people know there's a tattoo on his thigh? <laughs> like, what's he wearing where people can see the tattoo? Um, but, 
But, you know, he comes back, and he's, like, covered in blood before the battle starts. It's like, well, whose blood is that? It's his blood, right? Um, what's coming out of his mouth? It's a sword, right, representing the word of God. And what Tim Mackey argues, I think it's a great argument, so I'm going to try not to plagiarize it, is, like, when Jesus comes back, he has continuity with who he was on the cross. He has died for his enemies. His robes are covered in his own blood. And his weapon is his word. And what his word does is it reestablishes right and wrong. So it's undoing what people did at the fall. It's like we try to define for ourselves what right and wrong is. We try to escape his word and escape his, his precepts. But when he comes back, he's coming back with a sword to reestablish this is what's right, this is what's wrong. Get in line. Um, yay, I'm down with that. I have no problem with judgment. <laughs> Aren't y'all glad that my husband's the one who's on staff with this church, not me? I'm like, judgment, judgment. Um, and then, but going back to who Jesus is in Revelation, it's like he's reestablishing right and wrong. And then when he talks about his followers, the, the word says that they're the ones who overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony and love not their own lives, even unto death. So the followers that he has at the end of the age are the ones who modeled the posture that he had in his ministry on earth, where they overcome through humility, through having a witness that cannot be shaken, even if it cost them their lives. Okay, so I think that what this all says is that Jesus provides the perfect blueprint for how we overcome, right? It's, it's through doing the opposite of the spirit that leads to all the brokenness we've seen in the world, which is living as servants of all, loving not our own lives unto death, exalting Jesus instead of exalting ourselves. I really think that if we did that, like, we wouldn't have the problems we have. Okay. Um, so this is running super long. I'm going to wrap this up. <laughs> so how can we apply this? Um, so this part, like, it is an argument, so you don't have to agree with it. You don't have to swallow it. Test it. I'm just asking you to at least, like, consider some of these questions. Okay. So one thing that I want to invite us to do, like, as a church um, is to posture ourselves correctly before the cross. And what I mean by this is going back to what Isaiah says, like about all our acts of righteousness being like filthy rags, or like Paul saying like that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, is I think that we need to give up any claim of self-righteousness and see the cross as the ultimate equalizer. Why? Um, because these are some of the conversations I've heard within the American church. It's like, we're not going to help this community. They have the problems they have because they struggle with fatherlessness. Or this group of people doesn't respect the law. Or they don't value hard work. And what I really think those conversations are about is they are reasons that we excuse ourselves from the obligation to pursue justice. And I think the root of those excuses is pride. And it's like, that community doesn't deserve it. And like, so what? Like, so you do? Like, are you better? Um, no, right? Like, I think... Um, if some of us feel like we're doing well, it's not our own doing. You know, it's the grace of God. If you want me to share examples of how I've even grappled with this, and, like, for me to be super real with you about that, I'm happy to talk after service. You know, but I think when it comes to justice um, and righteousness... In the Old Testament, there's no equivocation. It's like orphan, widow, stranger, here's how you treat them, the end. And I think like the back and forth that the church has around these issues, I think it's our pride talking. I think it's us looking for excuses to not obey. I think the next thing that we can start doing is to just start asking the Lord and asking his broader body for wisdom. You know, in James 1, it says like, if you don't have wisdom, just ask him. You know, he's not gonna reproach you. He's not gonna be mad. 
you know, he wants to give it to you. And I also think, you know, as in other parts of, I think it's in, it's in Corinthians where it says, like, you know, talks about the diversity of the body, right? And how, and that goes in line with the fact that we all see in part and know in part. And I think, I think there are parts of the church that have, like, really pursued um, the revelation of justice. And so I think if, if we feel like, oh, we don't have that, then let's go learn from people who do. And even look at other believers in this church who've, like, really given their lives to the pursuit of expressions of justice. Um, there might be people in your home group. There might be people that you're just friends with that you know work in fields that, like, really impact the, you know, the trio of the vulnerable that is named in the Gospels, like the widow, the orphan, the stranger. Um, so, yeah, let's just ask. Like, let's not be embarrassed or afraid or, or let our discomfort stop us. You know, let's just engage in it. And I think the last thing I want to invite us to do is to ask God to align our allegiances not to our culture or our political identifications or other aspects of our identity, but just his kingdom. And I think this is especially crucial in America because politics and the church have always been entangled here. You know, we've never even had a sitting president who didn't identify as Christian. JFK was Catholic. That was kind of spicy for us. Mitt Romney made it close, but <laughs> Mormon, so didn't get elected. Um, but, but my point here is, like, we've really equated aspects of Christianity with aspects of politics. And I think that's, that's super confusing. You know, I think if we were Christians living under a regime that was secular or identified with another um, belief system entirely, it wouldn't be so confusing. But because of the fact of how America's history has been, I think we need to invite the Holy Spirit to be like, can you help me differentiate? Like, what of my beliefs are inherited from cultural assumptions around politics and faith and which of these things are you actually calling me to okay all right and the very last thing i promise i'm done this is just a, a nice story okay y'all okay so the nice story goes like this so i was listening to an interview with uh, christopher a hall he's a professor who specializes in the theology of the early church before it split into like orthodox and catholic catholic and protestant and he was talking about the teachings of the church fathers and the church fathers are the leaders in the church who were discipled by Jesus' own disciples. So they were just like one step removed from Jesus, right? And they were the ones who were really establishing the church like in the Roman Empire and like surrounding areas. And he was talking about their leadership of the early church and the kind of witness they presented in Rome. So here's a couple of things they did. One, we already know about because of Foster the Bay. It was an example that was cited there. They were very pro-adoption. Right? Like whenever children were abandoned because they weren't, you know, they, they, they weren't what the family wanted, the church would take those children in and raise them as their own. Okay? They were also anti-abortion, which was a common practice in the Roman Empire. They were also anti-capital punishment. They also would not baptize people into the church if they were serving in the military because there was a chance that that person would desecrate the image of God by killing another human being. You also could not be baptized in the church if you were actively portraying violence in entertainment or exploitative sex, like, or por pornographic images. Um, the church also didn't participate in, like, attending the forms of violent and entertainment that were so common in that day, like gladiator spectacles or circuses, um, because they were so committed to a whole and integrous witness about God's value for his creation and his desire for holiness in relationships between people. And what we already know, like, what's common knowledge from Acts is, like, that early church took care of the poor among them, took care of the widow and the orphan. And the reason I think this is a happy story is because 
this was such a radical witness. It stood out so clearly in the culture of the time, right? Like you look at this group of people and they abstain from things that are just incredibly common in the culture because the rallying point for them is a radical value for human life, a radical value for creation, and even when it's costly and it makes them visible as a persecuted minority, they still do it. You know, they were like sheep led to slaughter, like Jesus. You know, when the expressions of their faith led to their public execution, they just went to their death. But I think that they really stewarded the witness that Jesus had on the earth, you know, where he, his triumph was, was his crucifixion and his resurrection. You know, godly justice was embodied by Jesus and then embodied by his early followers in the form of laying down their lives for others to speak to them about the Lord um, and not asking others to lay down their lives on the church's behalf. And Christopher A. Hall calls this a cruciform life, like a life lived in the shape of the cross. And so I wanted to encourage us by saying, like, that's our legacy, you know? Like, it's challenging and it's offensive and it's probably going to give you something to grapple with. It gives me a lot to grapple with. Like, it makes me uncomfortable. Just, I'm like sweating up here talking about this. You know, but, but I think it's the way to life. You know, it's the way to freedom. And I don't think the point now is like, oh, we're going to get it right. And we're just going to start doing this now. But I think what this says is like, we have an invitation. We have an example to follow. We have the Holy Spirit who's here to instruct us and lead us. So let's ask him. You know, let's pursue justice and righteousness as an act of worship, ultimately, to God to say, like, we care about the things that you care about, and we want to know you in the way that you want yourself to be known. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and let's just take some time to ask the Holy Spirit, like, how do you want to instruct me? How do you want to give me vision? How do you want to challenge me? How do you want to give me hope? So I'll pray for us real quick. Jesus, I thank you for your perfect example. I thank you for fulfilling the dream that your father had at the dawn of creation. And I thank you for making a way where it looks like there is no way. I thank you that that's what you've always done and that the path that you've broken continues to be valid and compelling and revolutionary even now. And I pray that um, in every area where we've been discouraged from following you, um, in the area of justice and righteousness, I pray that you administer encouragement to us and remind us that it's worth it. It's worth it to know you. It's worth it to follow you in this area, and it makes a difference for the world. And I pray that in the areas where our vision of you has become obscured by like life experience or culture or other things, I pray that you would clarify that vision and let us see you for who you truly are. And finally, I just invite you to form us into the church that you dream of, that one that you thought of that when you were on the cross, the church that partners with you in the things that are important to you that truly acts as your hands and feet, that truly acts as your body. We can't do it in our own power. And without you, it's impossible. But through you, all things are possible. So we lift you up, we exalt you, and we invite you to do what only you can do. 
In Jesus' name I pray.